This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Marine Corps is fundamentally redesigning how it manages talent in the face of near-peer threats. We speak to the highest-ranking enlisted Marine about getting and keeping the right skills for future wars. Then, efforts are underway to pull carbon out of the atmosphere. A researcher from the National Institute of Standards and Technology talks about the role the agency plays in cleaning up the environment. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Marine Corps says its personnel system is overdue for a fundamental redesign. Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps Troy Black is the highest-ranking enlisted Marine, selected by the Commandant as his advisor. Sergeant Major, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. So let's talk about the plan to redesign the personnel system, uh, Talent Management 2030. What are those new skills and characteristics that you're looking for now? So a couple of things about Talent Management 2030. The first one is, uh, as it was written in Force Design 2030, the system we have now is a little bit outdated. Um, modernized systems allow us to use algorithms to better place the right Marines in the right jobs. So we're looking, first of all, to revamp the literally the IT and the systems so we can identify skills and traits that Marines have and make sure we have a better idea of how to place them. Your second part of your question was, what are the sort of new skills we're looking for? Um, the world is getting to become a little bit more technical so we're looking for those skills. We have several tests actually that we do on the recruiting side that sort of test whether or not someone outside just the ASVAB score, their AFQT score, whether they have these additional skills. Cyber tests, uh, we do an, well, a series of bank of tests that try to figure out what the other skills are. Yeah. But how do you know what uh, the skills that you're going to be needing for a future conflict are? I think it's pretty clear. I mean. I think sometimes we don't appreciate the skills we already have. I've got children still in high school. Actually, one just started college and one's in high school. Those that can do this, this is probably the world that we live in now, right? You and I grew up in maybe a different world. So we already have a sort of a set, set, set of skills that are already needed. The world is more digital. We use systems as much as we use our, just our, our physical presence on the battlefield now. So we're looking for those technical skills. The plan calls for a Marine, quote, with a higher level of operational experience. That's right. What does that mean and, and why? So experience you can't replace just with training. You have to have a combination of the training and the education. And then how many what we would call reps and sets of that do you, do you have? How many times have you practiced it? Even more importantly, Marines that deploy and come back with operational experience, we want to make sure we can retain more of those Marines. That's additional experience to re-educate and retrain to just continue to compound that experience. Well, that's what I was going to ask you because you're, you're no longer deployed. There's America's not at war right now. So how do you adjust your training in order to get that experience? Yeah, we may not be at war, but I, I, I use the following analogy about the Marine Corps. We're a service of four-thirds. One-third of the Marine Corps is deployed. One-third just got back. One-third's getting ready to, to train to go, and the rest of us in the supporting establishment, that fourth third, are getting ready to get orders to one of those other three organizations. There's 30,000-plus Marines forward deployed and forward stationed right now, so we are, we are constantly deployed, maybe not specifically to combat operations, but we're constantly deployed. 
Let's talk about retention because retention. the Marine Corps met its retention goal uh, for fiscal 2022. This is the first time in 10 years. So why do you think that was? What changes had to, ha to happen to, to meet that goal? Yeah, a couple of things. I think rebalancing the Marine Corps' retention and accession programs have been helpful, and we'll talk about that, I think, in a moment. Uh, the Commandant additionally has uh, gone out and done a Commandant's reenlistment program, really trying to find ways to incentivize the top talent and get them to stay in the Marine Corps. Additionally, there's a lot of efforts that have been going on with the talent management sort of systems I was talking to you about before. The force knows that, and they're looking for other opportunities and better ways to, to actually take charge and be responsible for their skills and how they get assigned. Well, you said incentivize top talent. What kind of incentives? Give me an idea of what you were offering. Really simple for the Marine Corps. One of the biggest challenges we have is with, that, with the systems being outdated, it's a very long process in time. So the longer someone has to wait for a decision from the headquarters whether or not they're going to be re-enlisted, the more difficult it is for them to think about what's my next step in my future. Uh, part of the Commandant's Retention Program turned that process from weeks into a matter of a couple of days. So being able to get someone who's energized now to stay and get them approved immediately, that's been beneficial. And it's still early days for fiscal 2023, but how are things looking? Any changes that are that you're going to put, put in place? We continue to see the propensity for wanting to be retained or stay in the Marine Corps continue to rise, which is, which is good. I think sometimes we have to understand we have a very deep talent pool, and the more ways we can ask Marines what would it take to keep you rather than you just stay, you know, kind of like give the, the, the sort of knife hand we're doing in the Marine Corps, is finding ways that they think is important for them to be able to stay. Watching the war in Ukraine continue to unfold, I wonder what have you learned from the failures of Russia's um, military with regard to their force structure? Now, I'm always cautious to try to find out too many lessons learned, like, because this is still an ongoing conflict. We might Your find observations, yeah, let's put observations. it that way. What is unknown is, and there's been several reports on this, I won't speak too much about the Russians other than I'll speak about the Ukrainians. Their, their development of their non-commissioned officers has been pivotal. Meaning that middle management leadership, the ones who have that training, education, and the repetitions and experience, has turned into be the real success on the battlefield. That's that's their enlisted. That's their enlisted management. I wonder if there's any of those observations that have influenced your thinking about Force Design 2030 at all. Have, has it reinforced what what's in that document? Any anything that you would want to change? Yeah, um, talent management 2030 is not about finding. Uh, new talent, it's about retaining talent, how to better manage that talent. Non-commissioned officers are the backbone of the Marine Corps. We've said that for, for decades. That's been, the, that's been our, our motto. Being able to retain those NCOs, to retrain, re-educate, retain that experience, we see that on the battlefield right now in Europe. What do you think is the biggest challenge in achieving all those retention goals? Transparency sometimes is a, is a challenging thing for us. There's needs of the Marine Corps, and there's how much play that the individual has in their career path. Uh, I will tell you, I've had the career path that I mostly desired to have, but it's not as transparent how you explain that to Marines and how they can be involved in that process. I think the more we can be transparent, offer them opportunities that they can choose a little bit more rather than just be told, that's very helpful, and that has a big impact on our retention. All right, stand by. We'll continue in the next segment. Awesome. Up next, I'll continue my conversation with Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, Troy Black. We'll be right back. We're back with Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, Troy Black. 
Sergeant Major, uh, the Defense Department's latest uh, sexual assault and prevention report says that 13.4% of women in the Marine Corps experienced unwanted sexual contact. Why is that happening? What are you doing about it? Yeah, first of all, sexual assault is a crime and it should be treated as such. And the, you may be well aware the Secretary of Defense, when he came in the seat, uh, put us on a program to do an independent review commission to find out what we could do different, identify different methods to be able to address sexual harassment and sexual assault. The IRC, we call it, came out with a number of recommendations. And first, the Marine Corps complying with and will continue to comply with all of those recommendations. So that's one of the things that we're doing. We continue to address sexual harassment and sexual assault through training education. We do vignettes, individual training. We teach leaders how to identify and we teach individuals how to report. Most importantly, we focus on making sure that victims of sexual assault are taken care of based upon whatever their needs are once they have a, uh, either harassment or some sort of bona fide uh, legitimate uh, reported sexual assault. The, the marine culture is very unique. It's ingrained in every new recruit. Is this a problem with the culture itself that needs to change? I say culture, no. And there's been a lot of arguing about culture, but I, I focus more on subcultures. There's nothing in the Marine Corps culture that's written that says, you know, do, do bad behaviors. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But there are pockets and there are individuals of subcultures that operate inside the, our, our greater culture that, that either continue to think that these are proper behaviors, don't properly identify what's right and wrong, which sometimes is the case, and then there's other cases where some individuals just ignore it. We, we call those people who don't want in our ranks any longer. The Marine Corps' Force Design 2030 calls mm. for certain legacy systems to be phased out, tanks, certain aircraft. That means that certain military specialties will also be phased out. So what's your plan to retrain all those Marines? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and just as an opening statement on that one, the Marine Corps and all the services always get rid of old things and they develop new things. I'm a great case. When I first uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps, I was going to be on a reserve contract to be a Hawk Missile System Specialist. There have not been Hawk Missile Systems in the Marine Corps almost since the day that I came into the Marine Corps. So I got out of that contract and, and been into the infantry. So we always change. Retraining those Marines uh, is very simple. Those Marines are offered an opportunity to do what's called a lateral move pick an, an opportunity of their choice if it's an open MOS and they can move right in those MOSs and just get retrained. So what are your thoughts on taking advantage of the highly skilled reserve Marines mm. that you would have in your ranks? Our reserve Marines are phenomenal. I, I was in a group of uh, reserve Marines just this past week up in Wisconsin. It was amazing to see Marines of you know varying pay grades not knowing what their civilian occupations were. A couple of E3s and E4s in that group were like CEOs of their own private businesses, which were like very successful businesses. So you have to understand the talent pool. Um, one of the things we've done is create an innovation unit that's going to be stationed in, in, uh, in New York. And they're going to take a bunch of these reserve Marines with a greater capacity for thinking and sort of look at the technical advances we need to have in the U.S. Marine Corps. And they're going to work as a workshop inside this innovation group. So we're going to try to harness some of their natural abilities in their, in, their, in their other environment. Tell me more, this is the Marine Innovation Unit. That's correct. When was it created? What are you expecting to get out of it exactly? Over the last probably year, year and a half, we've looked for opportunities to take and, and reinforce and enhance what our reserve Marines bring to advancing where we're going in our Marine Corps. And like I mentioned previously, we have a vast amount of experience in the reserve force. We forget they're not just Marines, right? They do all kinds of things. So trying to bring in those, those really critical thinking individuals who are working mostly in the tech fields, 
as part of their civilian job and figure out how we can take our weapon systems, our operating systems, our planning systems, modernize them to really get after being able to operate better in, in combat. Sergeant Major, Force Design 2030 also calls for stronger in a, uh, integration with the Navy. Tell me how you're interacting with your counterpart in the Navy. Yeah, in, integrating in the Navy is not something new to the Marine Corps or the Navy. The fact is, after two decades of being able to pretty much operate separate, uh, the Marine Corps was required in mass to go do other things ashore. But Marines like me, I was on a Marine Expeditionary Units two or three times during this period of time. So it isn't like the Marine Corps and Navy haven't been operating together, but the primary strategic role of our maritime force, the Navy and the Marine Corps, not so reinforced. That's where we're going right now. Uh, I've been very close with both the previous Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy and the newly appointed uh, Chief Honey. Uh, as he's come into his role as the MCPON, and I look forward to continuing that relationship. And what about with the other services? Are you working with your counterparts? Is there something that you you try to get out of that relationship? Yeah, the, the, the U.S. military will not for, fight as independent services. It's a joint force. And our senior enlisted advisor to the chairman, our SEAC, uh, he's brought together all of the service senior enlisted and all of our combatant command senior enlisted leaders together quarterly and we come together and we talk about what's going on in the Joint Force, how can we better facilitate the leadership and the development of the troops that, that are dispersed around the world. If I asked you what your number one priority will be for fiscal 2023, what would you say? People. In what way? Well, I think sometimes when we look at how we develop the Joint Force, but the Marine Corps, all the services struggle with resourcing the proper priorities. There is no system, there's no machine that's gonna win on the battlefield. It's the Marines, in my case, that win on the battlefield. So as we invest in one of three things, either these systems we talk about to better harness their talent and manage their talent, um, I gotta be frank, the base pay scale for enlisted needs to be addressed. Needs to be addressed. Um, if we have enlisted members based upon their base pay that qualify for welfare and food stamps, I would tell you that the base pay scale for enlisted is probably needs to, needs to get a review, that's huge. And the third thing is continue to invest in families. Families are people too. Uh, we have a motto, we say we recruit a Marine, but we retain a family. We gotta find the mechanisms to better and harness and bring together holistically all the resources we have to, to help our families as well. All right, Sergeant Major Black, nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you, nice to meet you, thank you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, Pakistan's former ambassador to the U.S. joins us to discuss how the two countries can improve their relationship. We'll be right back. Carbon dioxide emissions are the main cause of climate change, and researchers are trying to find ways to remove it from the atmosphere. That includes researchers from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. Earlier, I spoke with Pamela Chu. She's a group leader in the Materials Measurement Laboratory at NIST. Pam, welcome to the program. Thank you. So first, explain this idea of direct air capture. How does it work? So direct air capture is a technology that we're working on to remove carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas emissions um, from the atmosphere. One of the main challenges is that um, with um, human activity, a lot of these greenhouse gases and CO2 emissions have actually collected up in the atmosphere. Um, that's one of the major drivers for climate change that we're experiencing now. And what we really would like to do is remove those emissions and direct air capture is a way of doing it. Um, think of it of like being a plant. 
Um, we want to take the CO2 out, much like the plants do, and then we want to permanently store that CO2 someplace so that it no longer impacts our atmosphere. But how do you actually grab it out of the air? Like, what do you use to take it out of the air? So there are different um, solutions and materials that are, have been proven to take the CO2 out of the air. Uh, but one of the things that we're looking at is to develop better materials that do that process more efficiently and more effectively so it takes less energy and less um, and it'll cost less ultimately to do this process. And obviously there would be a big benefit of taking that out of the air. It would uh, alleviate some of the effects of, of climate change. What potential impact does this have if you're able to scale it? So yes, um, hopefully we can scale it. One of the the benefits is really to mitigate the climate change that we're seeing now because we have a lot of CO2 up in the atmosphere and that's what's impacting our climate today. Uh, as we go forward, we really need to mitigate these emissions. And so uh, as we can scale it up, we can hopefully bring our, our, our environment back to uh, before our emissions had such bad effect. And what role does NIST play in all this? Why, why is the federal government uh, involved in this? So NIST is really a, um, has a very specific niche of developing measurement science. Uh, so a lot of the measurement science that we develop um, pushes measurements forward uh, one step, two steps at a time uh, in order to improve our understanding of how things work. Uh, and it helps um, spur on innovation and new technologies. An example is uh, our push um, to develop better frequency and, and time measurements have really developed the um, global positioning system that we know today. So in the similar fashion, we are doing this for direct air capture. We're applying it to materials to understand how they might absorb CO2 and release that CO2 so that we can permanently store it. And so that hopefully we can spur on a new industry to effectively uh, capture the carbon dioxide. So Pam, what's the biggest challenge in actually getting this to work? Uh, the biggest challenge really is to scale it up to a level that's effective um, and have impact. Um, one of the challenges right now is there are prototype systems that are out there, but they're really only working at a level that's, um, we really need to improve it by six orders of magnitude. So is this really going to work? Are you optimistic that you can make this work that it can actually have an impact and that you're not actually increasing carbon emissions in trying to get it to work. So I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful that we can make it work. Um, it will take some research and development to really push this uh, technology forward. But examples of where we are today that we didn't anticipate being is where we are with solar energy and wind energy. You know, um, those are now uh, economically viable. Um, in the 70s, they weren't. So, you know, with time and with research, I think we can actually get to a point um, where this will be effective. We have a lot of bright people working on it, and it's a, really, it's an all-hands uh, effort right now to, with, between industry and the government to try and make this work. Tell me a little bit more about that and how you're working with industry and what their role is and, and what your specific role is. So, again, our specific role at NIST is to develop benchmark uh, measurement science and benchmark materials to help people compare what they are um, achieving in the research and development. So essentially what we, we do is provide a ruler for this system and so we can measure the success of new materials and new discoveries that other people are creating. Um, and then industry, how we work with industry is really we, 
We work with convening uh, stakeholders from industry and across government uh, to understand what the problems might be and how our measurements and standards that we develop can actually help the adoption of these um, new capabilities. Uh, for example, in the cement area and concrete, those are one of the biggest uh, emitters, uh, CO2 emitters, um, a major emitter of CO2. Um, and so what we're looking at is convening a consortium with industry and um, government to identify um, the challenges and the measurement challenges that are needed. You know, what we want to understand is the whole carbon footprint of this um, industry and then be able to address it um, to reduce that carbon footprint. Are you also collaborating with other agencies within the federal government? Uh, yes, we, we are looking to do that, you know, with our work um, in this consortium, we have a number of uh, other agencies that are uh, working with us. We also work with, um, attend a lot of the different agency um, uh, meetings to discuss our progress and, and understand what they, is needed from their perspective. Is this something that's going to require uh, more than just NIST? Is this a whole of government kind of this, approach? This is, this is absolutely a whole of government approach because there are all sorts of things that are needed to actually make this happen. We have to work on the science. We have to work on scaling it up and the engineering and the prototypes. And then we also have to work from the policy end um, to, to help um, spur that industry along. Well, it's a big problem, but I'm glad that you're on it. Thank you so much, Pam, for coming in. Thank you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to 
um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.